Today is November the 30th, 2022. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network, and that's prn.live, L-I-V-E, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. Did the New York State Fair Repair Act passed? The Digital Fair Repair Act is a New York State Electronics Right to Repair Act that was introduced in April 2021. It was approved as Bill A706B by the New York State Assembly on June the 3rd, 2022, by a vote of 145 to 1, and previously as Bill S410A by the New York Senate 59 to 4 on May the 27th, 2022. Overwhelmingly, both houses passed it. With the backing of the New York Public Interest Research Group and the Repair Coalition, working with sponsors New York Assembly members Patricia Fahey and State Senator Neil Breslin's shepherded the Fair Repair Act through committees and to the floors of the Assembly and Senate for a vote. In addition to the 145 to 1 slam dunk, the Senate bill passed 59 to 4, both veto-proof majorities with both measures winning solid Democratic and Republican support. New York could become the first state with a right-to-repair law for electronic devices. After passing with near-unanimous support in both houses of the state legislature, a bill that would allow New Yorkers to repair their electronic devices has not become law as it awaits Governor Kathy Hochul's signature. The bill sponsor in the Assembly, Assemblywoman Pat Fahey of Albany, said the bill would create a system that we use for cars, but for electronic devices we use each day. The bill known as Right to Repair would force companies to provide tools and parts for independent repair shops or individuals to repair devices like cell phones, and opponents of the legislation have cited safety and cybersecurity threats as their issues with the legislation. Supporters of the bill, including Fahey, said the bill would allow for economic growth in this sector and could help the tinkerers of today become the inventors of the future. The Federal Trade Commission has called the bill a milestone and has said it does not harm intellectual property rights. The bill has not been sent to the governor for her signature or veto, but Fahey said she and her office have been in contact with the governor's staff on the issue. However, Fahey said there has been opposition to this first-in-the-nation bill becoming law, making it virtually a David versus Goliath battle. Earlier this year, the state of New York passed the Digital Fair Repair Act. It's a landmark bill, and if signed into the law, it would be the first right-to-repair legislation in the United States. But one obstacle could lead to the bill's downfall. What is the holdup? 
The bill has not been sent to the governor for a signature, to sign for her signature or veto. You cannot override a veto vote if it was not veto. If it was not signed, so it is not officially passed. It can automatically become law if it was not signed or vetoed in 10 days. But the catch is, it has yet to be presented to the governor to either sign it or veto it. So it will be automatically vetoed if it isn't signed by December the 31st of 2022. FCC orders ISPs to display labels clearly showing speeds and itemized fees. These broadband labels will also have to be prominently visible at their point of sale. Internet service providers will soon have to be a lot more transparent with what their plans come with and how much they truly cost. The Federal Communications Commission has introduced new rules that will require ISPs to display easy-to-read and understand labels that show key facts about their products at the point of sale. These labels will resemble the nutrition labels at the back of food products and should include, among other things, the price, speed, data allowances, and other aspects of a company's wired and wireless internet services. In a statement, FCC Chairperson Jessica Rosen-Warsel said that by requiring the companies to display their rates, clearly, the agency is seeking to end the kind of unexpected fees and junk costs that can get buried in long and mind-numbing, confusing statements of terms and conditions. Providers will have to itemize each one-time and monthly fee that you'll have to pay. The FCC will require providers to prominently display these labels on their main purchasing pages and in close proximity to an associated plan advertisement. They cannot be hidden behind multiple clicks and can't be camouflaged by other elements in the page that they'll likely be missed. The labels also need to be accessible from your customer's account portal, and the provider must give you a copy when you ask. Further, the FCC is requiring the broadband companies to make the labels machine-readable so that third-party developers can easily create tools that will make it easier to compare ISPs. The Commission proposed rules for broadband labels back in January in response to the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act that President Biden signed into the law last year. After the Office of Management and Budget under the Paperwork Reduction Act reviews and approves the FCC requirements, ISPs will have six months or a year if you're a smaller company to comply. Japan admits defeat with its moonbound CubeSat. Japan has given up trying to become the fourth country to reach the moon. Japan admits defeat with its moonbound CubeSat. The nation sent its Omatenashi CubeSat into orbit aboard NASA's SLS rocket when it launched the Orion spacecraft toward the moon in the Artemis One mission. But after separating from the SLS rocket, the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency, with the acronym JAXA, J-A-X-A, was unable to establish communications with the Omatenashi, preventing the CubeSat from attempting a lunar landing. Kyoto News reported mission leader Tatsuaki Hashimoto described the failure as deeply regrettable. 
After several days of trying to make contact with the CubeSat, JAXA finally admitted defeat, at the same time promising to launch an investigation to find out what went wrong. What we do know is that after separating from the rocket, the Omotenashi solar cells failed to properly function. The Omotenashi CubeSat is just 37 centimeters on its longest side and tips the scale at 27.8 pounds. The $5.6 million mission was supposed to demonstrate a relatively low-cost way of landing on and exploring the lunar surface. The CubeSat is designed to take measurements of the radiation environment close to the moon as well as on the lunar surface. The technology included a cold gas thruster to enable the CubeSat to enter a lunar impact orbit and a solid rocket motor to help it reduce speed during the landing phase. Had the touchdown sequence played out as planned, the lander would have discarded the rocket and enter a free fall for about 100 meters. Just prior to impact with the lunar surface, the lander would have deployed a small airbag to reduce the force of the impact. While the Omotenashi will no longer be heading to the lunar surface, there's still a chance that mission operators will be able to establish contact with the CubeSat next year when its solar panels face the sun. This will allow the team to download radiation measurements gathered during its time in space. Only three countries have landed spacecraft on the moon, the United States, Russia, and China. Japan is going to have to wait, well, a little longer before it can add itself to the list. Robo-enabling provider gets the digital death penalty from the FCC. The order requires telecom firms to stop accepting traffic from Global UC, a company that the FCC says repeatedly ignored anti-robocall regulations. The Federal Communications Commission has ordered every telecom provider in the United States to stop accepting traffic from a company that it says scorned its robocall rules, dealing that firm the equivalent of a digital death penalty. The order issued against Global UC, a small firm based in Fort Worth, Texas, reports that the company filed a deficient certification with the FCC's robocalls mitigation database that lacked the required description of its participation in the mandatory core authentication system called Stir Shaken. When asked to fix that, the order says Global UC replied, we are not needing this certification. Turns out they do need that certification. The FCC order requires all intermediate providers and terminating voice service providers to drop Global UC's traffic within two business days. For too long, robocalls have flooded our phones and facilitated fraud, says FCC Chair Jessica Rosenworcel. So we are using a new tool to fight against these scam calls. We are cutting providers off and preventing them from accessing our networks when they fail to demonstrate they will protect consumers. This is a novel way to stop robocalls, and it's one that we are going to keep using until we get this junk off the line. The commission warned providers that they might face this form of electronic excommunication when it notified eight uncooperative providers that they were at risk of government-ordered disconnection. Global UC was not among those original eight, but it apparently failed to take the hint. It's not the first time the agency has shut off access to other networks. 
The Federal Communications Commission didn't take long to start isolating voice providers that don't do enough to block robocalls. The regulators had cut off provider global UC from other networks after allegedly failed to meet requirements for protecting against scam robocalls. Now that the company is no longer in the robocall mitigation database, other carriers, including intermediaries, will have to stop accepting its traffic. The FCC said in October it had planned to cut off Global UC and six other firms that didn't share their anti-robocall strategies despite warnings. The commission required that all U.S.-based carriers with IP-based networks use stir-shaken anti-spoofing measures by the end of June 2021 and told providers to start blocking companies outside of the robocall mitigation database after September 28th of that year. It's not certain when other offenders might face punishment. However, the FCC said it was still reviewing responses from firms that had been asked to show their strategies for limiting robocalls. Those that can provide concrete plans should avoid cutoffs. The crackdown isn't guaranteed to reduce the volume of robocalls, particularly those originating outside the United States. Even so, the FCC clearly hopes global UC's fate will send a message to American companies hoping to skirt the rules. If they don't take action, they risk losing business as customers are forced to head elsewhere. Big tech companies making massive cuts in headcount. According to data from layoffs.fyi, a crowdsourced database of tech layoffs, 1,388 tech companies have laid off a total of 233,483 employees since the onset of COVID-19, but 2022 has been the worst for the tech sector. As of mid-November, more than 73,000 workers in the U.S. tech sector have been laid off in mass-level job cuts led by companies like Meta, Twitter, Salesforce, Netflix, Cisco, Roku, and others. Just a few of the tech companies that have notably trimmed their headcount in 2022, according to Crunchbase. Big tech companies like Amazon and HP Computer have joined the global layoff season and were set to lay off more than 10,000 and up to 6,000 employees in days to come, respectively. HP, the PC maker, plans to lay off as many as 6,000 employees over the next three years. The cuts are part of a broader restructuring, HP announced. The company estimates it will save it $1.4 billion by the end of fiscal year 2025, in part by reducing its headcount by at least 4,000 employees. The company expects to reduce gross global headcount by approximately 4,000 to 6,000 employees, HP said. These actions are expected to be completed by the end of fiscal 2025. HP employs approximately 51,000 employees globally. The company's most recent fiscal quarter saw revenue drop by more than 11% year-on-year to $14.8 billion. CEO Eric Lorries blamed the poor performance on macroeconomic conditions and softening demand for the company's PCs and printers. He isn't the only tech company to announce significant job cuts in recent weeks. Twitter completed 
multiple rounds of layoffs after Elon Musk took control of the company on October the 27th. Meta and Amazon also announced job cuts this month. In the case of Facebook, or Meta, the social media giant, the 11,000 employees of that go was on November the 9th, represented the first mass layoffs in the company's history. Amazon CEO Andy Jassy has warned employees that there will be more layoffs at the company in early 2023 as leaders continue to make adjustments. The massive job cuts have hit several divisions, especially the Alexa virtual assistant business that reportedly set to lose $10 billion this year as the voice assistant never managed to create an ongoing revenue stream. Alphabet, Google's parent company, is reportedly gearing up to lay off about 10,000 poor-performing employees, or 6% of its workforce. According to a report in The Information, Google plans to ease out 10,000 employees through a new ranking and performance improvement plan. Meanwhile, thousands of contractual employees have also been let go, making 2022 the harshest year for workers in the technology sector. Thinking about taking your computer to the repair shop? Be very concerned. If you ever worried about the privacy of your sensitive data when seeking a computer or phone repair, a new study suggests you have good reason. It found that privacy violations occurred at least 50% of the time, and not surprisingly, with female customers bearing the brunt. Researchers at University of Guelph in Ontario, Canada, recovered logs from laptops after receiving overnight repairs from 12 commercial shops. The logs show that technicians from six of the locations had accessed personal data and that two of those shops also copied data onto a personal device. Devices belonging to females were more likely to be snooped on and that snooping tended to seek more sensitive data, including both sexually revealing and non-sexual pictures, documents, and financial information. One of the researchers said in an interview, we were blown away by the results. Especially concerning was the copying of data, which happened during repairs for one from a male customer and the other from a female. We thought they would just look at the data at most the amount of snooping may actually have been higher than recorded in the study, which was conducted from October to December of 2021. In all, the researchers took the laptops to 16 shops in Greater Ontario Region. Logs on devices from two of those visits weren't recoverable. Two of the repairs were performed on the spot and in the customer's presence, so the technician had no opportunity to in any way view personal data. In three cases, Windows Quick Access or Recently Access files had been deleted in what the researchers suspect was an attempt by the snooping technician to cover their tracks. As noted earlier, two of the visits resulted in the logs the researchers relied on being unrecoverable. In one, the researcher explained they had installed antivirus software and perform a disk cleanup to remove multiple viruses on the device. The researchers received no explanation in the other case.
The laptops were freshly imaged Windows 10 laptops. All were free of malware and other defects and in perfect working condition, with one exception. The audio driver was disabled. The researchers chose that glitch because it required only a simple and inexpensive repair, was easy to create, and didn't require access to users' personal files. Half of the laptops were configured to appear as if they belonged to a male, and the other half to a female. All the laptops were set up with email and gaming accounts and populated with browser history across several weeks. The researchers added documents, both sexually revealing and non-sexual pictures, and a cryptocurrency wallet with credentials. The researchers also configured the laptops to run the customer logging app that used the Windows Steps Recorder utility in the background. The utility captured the screen on every mouse click and recorded each key pressed by the user. The researchers also enabled Windows Audit Policy to log access to any file on the device. The researchers then brought the laptops to two national outlets, two regional ones and four local ones. Half the customers were male and the other half were female. Besides finding widespread snooping, the study uncovered other problems. Among them, the vast majority of repair shops provided no privacy policy and those that do have no means of enforcing them. Even worse, repair technicians required a customer to surrender their login password even when it wasn't necessary for the repair needed. These findings came from a separate part of the study in which the researchers brought an ASUS UX330U laptop into 11 shops for a battery replacement. This repair does not require a technician to log into the machine since the removal of the back of the device and access to the device BIOS for checking battery health is all that's needed. Despite this, all but one of the repair service providers asked for the credentials to the device OS anyway. When the customer asked if they could get the repair without providing the password, three refused to take the device without it. Four agreed to take it, but warned they wouldn't be able to verify their work or be responsible for it. One asked the customer to remove the password, and one said they would reset the device if it was required. The results likely confirm what many more experienced computer users already know, that their data is vulnerable to snooping or copying anytime they surrender the device to untrusted or unknown individual, particularly when the individual has their login password. For a much larger percentage of people wanting to recover crucial data on a broken device, the findings are likely a wake-up call with few, if any, good solutions. The investigations shows an absence of policies and controls to safeguard customers' data across all types of repair service providers. The researchers concluded that their work calls to action device manufacturers, OS developers, repair service providers, and regulatory bodies that take appropriate measures to safeguard customers' privacy in the repair industry. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell.
This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we pause for just a moment and think about the workplace. Think about how tech and the workplace are colliding. In this case, Jeffrey has a question for me, and Jeffrey's question is something that is being sorted out by a lot of different people in a lot of different directions. Jeffrey asks me, what is your solution to the work from office, work from home, work from anywhere, conflict and debate? And the answer is, I don't have one. You know, this is a, this is an area that we all struggle with. And I've talked about this uh, from a dem- number of different perspectives over the course of the many years that I've been on the radio. And I want to I want to approach this from from a variety of different aspects. Work from home on a once a week, twice a week, three, however many times basis is going to be good for the employee or the employer based upon the relationship with each of the individuals that are involved as well as the company that's involved as well as company culture and so many different things. We think of this, all of us, on a very small scale. Is this good for me? Well, maybe, maybe not. Is this good for me and my boss? Maybe, maybe not. And we keep going all the way through all of these different areas. And there's always going to be differences. I worked for a company for uh, for about a year and a half or so. And when I worked there, I did have the option for working from home once a week. And the relationship that I had with my boss was it was not conducive to the environment of working from home on that once a week basis partially having nothing to do with the relationship with the boss but when my boss went to a particular management level meeting she would find out all of the different things we were doing right and where we were doing wrong and she would find that out the Basically, the day before I was not in the office. So she didn't have a chance to address those things right away. And then she took off the following day. So think about this. She had a meeting on Wednesday. I was gone on Thursday. She was gone on Friday. She was working from home on Friday. So it wasn't until Monday when we could solve anything. And then we didn't really solve anything because some of the things were out of mind Because they were out of sight by then. So we went through a a lot of these different things. And that wasn't so good. And then I moved on to a different company. And at the different company, everything was going fine. I was in the office every day. And then something hit. You might have caught on to that little thing which created this mess for all of us. And that was COVID. And COVID hit. And we were all working from home. And we all had to adapt We all had to learn very quickly, but we were all in the same boat. And so we were all going through a lot of these different growing pains. 
and a lot of these different evaluations and interactions. And we were already a company where I was working there where we didn't have as much interaction. We would have we would have meetings, group team meetings, and we would be sitting there and we would be within uh, we could we could have easily gone and found a conference room and the five or ten of us could sit in a conference room, have our meeting and then dismiss. Instead, we did it from each of our individual desks. So we were already there. The company I work for now, I work via remote. I am many, many miles away from uh, from the nearest potential office, let alone the offices which I would have to be in. It was intended as a remote position when they hired me. And so, yes, I'm going through a different experience there. They have to, uh, they have to go through and they have to plan this forward. But COVID helped strengthen how they thought of things. COVID helped expand their minds. There are going to be people who are going to be in one camp or the other. There are going to be people who are in the middle ground camp. I'm the middle ground camp. I don't believe that there should be a flat out, no, everybody needs to come to the office because you don't get the best resources that way. I'm not of the opinion that everybody needs to work from home because there are people who are, we'll just say, they need a little bit more guidance and care and attention to their job than most people or than, than the average person does even. So you have to kind of weigh this out. If you are in a situation where you are work from home, my best solution is communicate with your bosses, communicate with your coworkers, stay in contact, be at the forefront of their mind, especially when things are going wrong. Look to find a way to provide value, even though you're via remote. Look to find ways to make the company better, even though you are many miles away. This is probably going to be the best thing for all of us in every situation, in every job, whether we're working from home or via remote. We just have to focus on it a little bit more if we're far away. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. Continuing conversation with Dr. Rebecca Mercury on ranked choice voting. And I know it's one of your favorite topics that to talk about, <laughs> ranked choice voting. What is it anyway? Okay, so we've been hearing a lot about ranked choice voting recently, but it's been around for many, many decades. Um, there was a candidate, uh, I guess some might call him a rogue candidate or a third-party candidate decades ago by the name of John Anderson, who, um, you know, basically a third-party candidate can siphon off votes 
from the two candidates. And in fact, you see that in Georgia with their U.S. Senate election. There were three candidates, the Republican candidate, the Democrat incumbent who is running for re-election, and the, a third party candidate who got about 2% of the vote. And so since the other two were so evenly split between the, you know, their votes, it was so close, neither of them made 50%. And the rules in Georgia, not necessarily in other states, but the rules in Georgia is you have to go above, one candidate has to get above 50% in order for them to be declared the winner in Georgia, okay? So they need to have, as they did uh, as they did two years earlier, they needed to have a runoff election for the U.S. senator candidate. So, but why? Why was because if there were only two candidates running, unless it was a dead tie, and they each got precisely the exact same number of votes, the third party candidate siphoned off some votes from each of them. And so in the runoff election, there will only be two candidates. And again, hopefully, if, unless they have a dead tie, then I guess they flip a coin or whatever their state law is. But what if, since there's only two candidates, there will not be um, a problem with somebody getting over 50%. Now, the reason why I explain all of this is because in ranked choice voting, what you're creating is a system that inherently has people, additional people, additional candidates added in order to siphon off votes from the lead candidates. And so when you're voting, you pick your first choice. Let's say, again, there's three candidates. So you pick your first choice, and then you pick your second choice. So like in Georgia, this is a real election, but it, they did not use ranked choice. But if they did... You could pick the first choice, and then maybe you'd pick that rogue candidate, the third-party candidate, and then I'm not saying they are rogue. I'm just saying we refer to it as that. So then you would pick that. But actually, in some of these, they call them instant runoff voting, ranked choice voting. They, all the methods are slightly different. So I'm just giving you a generic thing. I don't want anybody to come back to me saying, that's not the way it really works. It works many different ways, but I'm just giving you a generic example about what instant runoff voting and ranked choice voting is all about. Basically, you would assume you would go for the first person and the second person, but they might also say you have to pick a third person. Many people would leave that blank if they didn't want to vote for the person that they didn't want to vote for originally. So so it, it really depends a lot on the way the candidates are set up. Now, the, the archetype example is that we say that there's two regular party candidates. So again, we'll just have, you know, candidate A, candidate B. And candidate C might be somebody that everyone would universally despise, like Hitler. Okay, so not that we could vote for Hitler because he's not an American. But in any event, um, but let's say there was some really a horrible person and that is the person who is the third person. So then you have a real problem because let's say you really don't like candidate B. You don't like that person at all. And you certainly don't like that third person. So people would just leave their other ones blank. So what happens in the, the way that you can sort of try personally among yourselves and other politicians and other citizens to rig the election is that some people leave their first choice blank or use the horrible candidate, assuming nobody else will vote for that horrible candidate, and they shift their preference 
to the second. So in other words, so candidate A is really who they want to vote for. So instead, they and candidate A and B are running a dead heat. So they take candidate C and they vote for candidate A. They put that in the first choice, assuming that many people will not vote for that person. So they wouldn't be able to win either way. But then they put the real person that they really like as candidate B. So you understand that in order to do this, you have to really have a mind for the math of this, but it can be done. And there's, you know, people want to assume that just because we have this ranked choice voting, that there's no way to actually rig it by making your choices a certain way. In fact, there is. So ranked choice voting is just a confusing method of casting ballots, which can be played if you know the numbers and if you have enough people, the insiders that you tell, okay, don't, I know you really want to vote for so-and-so, but just put them in as the second choice, you know, and then that way there would be a, a, a chance that they could actually win. So it's really, it's, you know, everybody's all gung-ho about it. They're using it in Alaska and, you know, certain other places, some places in California are using it. You know, they're using it all over the place. It's been catching on. There's there's a guy, I think his name is Rob Ritchie, um, who has been a big proponent of this, but he's also been a big proponent of other things that would pollute the vote counts. I won't get into those here, but you really need to look at the people who are behind this. And the reason why I mentioned John Anderson, the presidential candidate decades ago, is that he was actually very much a proponent of this, and many of the people who are pushing for this have not fallen far from the tree of John Anderson or could be connected directly back to John Anderson. I'm not saying John Anderson was a bad guy. I'm just saying that that it, it has been a long-standing tradition to try to siphon off votes from leading candidates to see if we could we can shift things. And RCV and IRV are just new methods of doing this that will be played out in in other notorious ways and will not give people the person that they really wanted to elect. Well, you know what? Uh, I think you have an excellent point there, but, but well, you know, with a, a ranked choice voting, if you think about it, in a way, think about the Israeli or the uh, uh, um, Britain's uh, uh, parliament procedure where if a uh, party does not gain the majority, they then go to the the third, uh, you know, the one not not the second party, but then they uh, they make deals. They make deals, right, right, right. And, and what's prevent that from happening as we evolve from ranked choice uh, voting in the United States to deals made by the third candidate? Well, the bottom the bottom line of all of these things, and what I've been saying from minute one in this interview, and what I've said in my <laughs> doctoral dissertation, which was defended 20 years ago, I, I, what I'm saying is there's always a way to rig things. So what again, what you have to have are the checks and balances. You can't just rely on the, you know, this this top level that, okay, everybody voted, now we're just going to count those votes. You have to have other checks and balances in place to make sure that these things are not actually going to happen. Let me ask you, you talk about checks and balances, and I agree with you, but who does the checks and balances? 
well, you know, uh, you know, well, the best thing, well, the best thing would be that it would be a nonpartisan group. But how can I, how can you even say you're a nonpartisan these days? I mean, there's no, you might say you might register as independent or whatever, but again, that doesn't mean that that's really how you are. So maybe everybody should have to take a lie detector test if you're going uh, to serve on these committees. I don't know. I really don't. what, what, What about the use of the Justice Department? I, I, wait. You don't want to get into that. <laughs> wait, right? you don't want to get into that. I was friendly on the record. But let me say, my regular day job is that I'm a digital forensics investigator, and I do work for the Justice Department, um, typically for the Public Defender's Office. And we don't want to go there with what goes on with the Justice Department. So it's a very it's a very interesting place. Let's put it Okay. That way. Thank you, Rebecca. <laughs> Thank you, Rebecca. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. FTX was the first cryptocurrency exchange to collapse. Now, BlockFi follows in setting off a chain of events. Marty Winston and Benjamin Rockwell, last September 2021, was already calling it a pyramid scandal. Just three weeks ago, Sam Bankman-Fried, the founder and chief executive of FTX and the figure at the center of the crisis, was trying to assure his customers, FTX is fine, he wrote on Twitter. Assets are fine. The next day, Mr. Bankman-Fried announced his plan to sell FTX to Binance, a rival cryptocurrency exchange. FTX, one of the world's largest cryptocurrency exchanges, collapsed with stunning speed this month. A run on deposits left the company owing customers $8 billion, setting off a chain of events that has shaken the crypto world and driven investigations by the Securities and Exchange Commission and the Justice Department. The $32 billion cryptocurrency company managed billions of dollars worth of customers' assets. Now FTX could owe money to more than a million people and organizations. In a matter of days, Binance pulled out of the deal. FTX filed for bankruptcy, and Mr. Bankman-Fried, once a star in the world of crypto, had tendered his resignation. This was followed by crypto lender BlockFi that it has filed for bankruptcy just this Monday, citing FTX exposure. Cryptocurrency lender BlockFi has filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection, it said this Monday. The latest crypto casualty after the firm was hurt by exposure to the spectacular collapse of the FTX exchange earlier this month. The filing in the New Jersey court comes as crypto prices have plummeted. The price of Bitcoin, the most popular digital currency by far, is down more than 70% from a 2021 peak. BlockFi's Chapter 11 restructuring underscores significant asset contagion risk associated with the crypto ecosystem, said Mansour Hussein, Senior Director at Fitch Ratings. New Jersey-based BlockFi, founded by fintech executive-turned-crypto entrepreneur Zach Prince, said in a bankruptcy filing that its substantial exposure to FTX created a liquidity crisis. FTX, founded by Sam Bankman-Fried, filed for protection in the United States early in November 
after traders pulled $6 billion from the platform in three days and rival exchange Binance abandoned a rescue deal. Hey, Ben, Marty, take it away. Marty Winston's been out and about on various little excursions, as we've been talking about here and there. But I did get a chance to to wrangle him in. I've got him here. Marty, tell me about crypto. Oh, crypto. Yes, crypto. I'm wonderful. It, it was Superboy's dog from the planet Krypton. He had superpowers. He could fly. He could see in color, <laughs> unlike other dogs. And he never needed to be walked. That joke is kind of rough. Oh. oh, I'm just barking up the wrong tree with this. I just know it. Yeah. What was that? Uh, they're going to shut us down for that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just barking up the wrong tree. Yes. Anyway, so um, cryptocurrency, a.k.a. Oh, Bitcoin and, and fake money. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Truly fake money. Cryptocurrency. Remember in high school, all the girls who promised you if you bought them such and such, they go out with you and they never would. Cryptocurrency is like that. <laughs> oh, my. Yeah. <laughs> you know, let's not talk about non-frangible tokens. Yeah. Well, it's not that it's something you can't return to Christmas, right? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> uh, frangible usually means you can break it up. You know, frangible tape comes mm -hmm. apart so you can never get the whole sticker off. It's a security measure. Mm -hmm. So really non-frangible tokens means the token is stuck together you can't pull it apart well what's a token a token is something that stands for something else and really isn't it have you ever looked at a dollar bill what do you think it is it's a promise from the government to give you that value whatever it happens to be at that minute yeah it used to be silver it used to be oh, yeah, silver, silver certificates cert gold certificates now it's in God we trust. Yes, it is. Even most grandparents out there don't remember that stuff. You know, really, how old are you, Ben? <laughs> <laughs> no, they were still... Federal Reserve it, notes. Yeah, Federal Reserve yeah, notes yeah, is yeah. more current. Yeah. And yeah. then there were savings bonds. Yeah, savings bonds still exist, don't they? I, 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 yeah, I don't know. but they're a terrible investment. Uh, well, these days, a lot of things are terrible investments. So, you know, what you was make it? more money investing in forever stamps. Yeah, earlier this year, Bitcoin went from whatever it was to half of what it was worth I know. In, in in weeks. I've, so, well, yeah. What What are you going to do? I I think it's time to escalate the thing and let us come out with our own Bitcoin. <laughs> That's a computer joke. If uh, we'll explain well, a, that another time. A byte is eight bits, right? Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. A quarter is two bits, so a byte is a buck. <laughs> Got the math, folks. Got the math. There you go. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, how many bitcoins do I own? Let me ask you this: How many DeLoreans do I own? Well, you sold one. You sold one to that crazy doctor who was making a time machine. No, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I didn't sell it. He took it. <laughs> he ran he off with it and some plutonium. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I've, uh, you know, I, I struggle with Bitcoin. You know, I struggled with it. I, I almost bought a hundred dollars of it on a lark back, uh, back when it was a dollar. Uh, I know somebody else who did buy a hundred or so when it was about two dollars. He's the and only person I know who's really bought into Bitcoin heavily. Uh, it, oh, he he lucked out. 
he's retired now. He he fully retired, and his wife and uh, him are they moved to Arizona. They moved to okay, to, now, to like a really a hot area of, of well, all of Arizona's hot, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, go to go to any sink. You got two taps. One hot. is hot water, the other is steam. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> hot and hotter. Uh, yeah, um, but, but look, let's let, let's deal with this in a way that is relatable to people. Sure. Yeah, a Bitcoin where the guys who are in early make money. Isn't that a characteristic of a pyramid scheme? Where the first people in make a bunch of money, and everybody who comes comes along later makes less money. Yes, that's a pyramid that scheme. That yeah. can get stung and lose it all. Yeah, yeah. Now, so, what happens when the let's pretend we're writing a script, mm -hmm. and in that script, somebody decides they want to make off with the fortune in bitcoins on the server they own, and they do that by pretending to have been hacked. All of a sudden, I couldn't do anything about it. They win before I knew it. They hacked my server, and it had a backdoor to all the other servers on the non-frangible token network. And now I'm sorry, everyone who bought this Bitcoin has nothing left. Well, that guy's collected, what, a trillion bucks right there? Yeah, and and there have been a few of the cases like that. There were, um, I, I think it's, it's, a, it's about 1% of the uh, of the. Uh, cryptocurrencies went went belly up due to suspected or outright known fraud. Uh, another ten percent have failed just because they were just bad ideas. So let's focus on the key question here. Yes, people, should you invest in Bitcoin? And the answer is. If you have more money than brains and want to adjust the ratio, by all means, do it. <laughs> <laughs> Who was it? I, I think it was um, what Elon Musk at one point. No, uh, maybe it was him. After investing in Bitcoin said, you know, anybody who invests in it is stupid, uh, which was really bizarre that, you know, he would do that. But, hey, yeah, it's it's an ongoing saga. I think well, look where he sends his cars. Into space, I know, yeah. <laughs> With some dummy at the wheel. <laughs> As for now, this is Benjamin Rockwell, and that's Marty Winston. This is Benjamin Rockwell, back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin, and thank you, Marty. Public service announcements. Computer club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut tri-state region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. TechEd Connect, formerly known as the Westchester PC Users Group, that's WPCUG, will have a presentation, Holiday Tech Gift Ideas, Thursday, December the 1st at 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is wpcug.org. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey meets Friday, December 2nd, 2022, at 8 p.m., online virtual meeting via Jitsi. The website is acgnj.org. The New York Amateur Computer Club meets Thursday, December 8th, at 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom. The website is nyacc.org. The Brookdale Computer Users Group has no November meeting this month, but
but they do have a meeting Thursday, December 8th. Meeting time is 6.45 p.m., virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is bcug.com. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, December the 9th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is limac.org. The King's Byte Computer Club meets Tuesday, December the 13th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. at the Park Plaza Restaurant, 220 Cadman Plaza, West Brooklyn. Call 347-278-7320 for more information. The chill of winter has finally arrived. There are many less fortunate people who don't even have the basic necessity of a winter coat. You can donate winter coats to those in need at many of the donation sites near you. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email address to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy. Until we meet again, same time, same station next week.